0: Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com. Support for this podcast comes from the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Our Time on Earth. Rediscover life on Earth through immersive artworks that reveal our incredible, irreplaceable natural world. On view now, learn more at pem.org. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. Across
1: the country, pharmacy workers are walking off the job to protest what they call unsafe working conditions at some of the biggest retail chains.
2: Earlier this year, thousands of workers walked off the job at CVS and Walgreens stores in 15 states, including New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Florida, Texas, and Illinois. The action was dubbed Pharmageddon a protest by pharmacists against what they say are unreasonable and unsafe working conditions at the biggest chain pharmacies in the United States. One of their major concerns? Understaffing. Protesters say the issue isn't a shortage of pharmacists or pharmacy techs, but a shortage of workers who want to do these jobs at big chain retail stores, where they say workers are already burning out. According to the American Pharmacists Association, the industry has approximately 7,500 job openings for pharmacists and 25,000 plus openings for pharmacy techs. Now, pharmacists are highly educated and highly trained specialists who provide medications to just about everyone in the United States, which means the shortage of qualified workers could also have an impact on just about everyone in the United States. So how did we get here? What's driving the changes that pharmacists say they're experiencing in the nation's largest corporate and retail pharmacies? That's what we're going to look at today. And we'll start with Shane Jerminski. He's been a practicing pharmacist in Southern California for 16 years, has worked at the big chain stores like Walgreens and CVS, and now works for an independent pharmacy. He also helped organize the walkouts earlier this year. Shane, welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me, Meghna. Uh, So can you describe to me the worst day or one of the worst days that you had uh, as a pharmacist when you were working at uh, CVS or Walgreens? Oh, for sure. So uh,
1: I started my career with Walgreens back in 2007. And at that time, there was an actual real shortage of pharmacists in Southern California. So there were new pharmacists from all over the country, but all of them were immediately thrown into uh, roles of uh, pharmacy managers, where essentially you're responsible for everything. You're responsible for maybe another pharmacist as well as multiple technicians. And during one of my first years there, during the swine flu epidemic, we... Myself and one other pharmacist did over 2,000 flu shots in the course of a few months. But that first day, we did about 150 flu shots with uh, 50 pneumonia vaccines with one technician and two pharmacists there with overlap for just a couple hours. So we had lines throughout the door. This is a was in a busy pharmacy in Southern California, two lanes of drive-through, a golf cart drive-through lane, so when you when you have that many extra duties along with just shape, safely and accurately checking prescriptions, anyone can feel overwhelmed and you just feel like a mistake is imminent. Mm.
2: Wow, that is a lot <laughs> in for for a single day. Um but I couldn't one come back and say, well, that was under sort of a potential epidemic scenario and there was just a huge spike in demand from people who wanted uh, vaccinations. And so how is how does that compare to what was the norm for for you at uh, CVS or Walgreens? For sure. So during those first few years, there
1: was a flu shot season. And even during the swine flu epidemic, which did see an increase in, in demand, uh, the business model has changed to all vaccinations all day, Every time you can make appointments, you can have walk-ins, and that seems to be the central focus of most of these pharmacies now because the margins are so much better on on vaccinations. So it's almost like filling prescriptions safely and accurately is now an afterthought because these chain pharmacies are in love with the margins
2: associated with vaccinating. Okay. Wow. Wow. Actually, you know, now, now that you mentioned that, Shane, I, I'm just thinking sort of of my neighborhood uh, chain pharmacies and there are sort of vaccine get your vaccine now shot, uh, vaccines now posters up year round, which I guess I, several years ago I, didn't, I hadn't noticed that. Um, but what about if there's a, a sort of steady increase in demand or even sort of a sharp temporary increase? I guess the, the real question is, did the company adjust staffing to keep up with the increase in demand?
1: No, I think that the the company is doing a terrible job at really staffing appropriately. And as you mentioned, there's lots of open jobs out there. And it's not a shortage of pharmacists or a shortage of pharmacy technicians, but a shortage of pharmacists and technicians willing to practice in these settings. Uh, There's a lot at risk for a pharmacist when a medication error occurs. And after all of that education, you don't want to put your license at risk working for a company where you don't feel like you're supported. Hmm. Well, you know,
2: we did reach out uh, to CVS and Walgreens and several other uh, big uh, pharmacy companies across the United States, and uh, CVS sent us back uh, a response to some detailed questions that we emailed them. And, and first of all, they did they did say that they employ more than thirty thousand pharmacists and seventy thousand pharmacy technicians, and that revenues for the company from their pharmacy business comprised about 77% of CVS's overall revenues. So there's indication that it's a a huge or the biggest part of their business. I'm going to add another little wrinkle here for context, uh, and that those were revenue percentages I gave you in terms of actual dollars, uh, CVS Pharmacy and Consumer Wellness that, that segment of their business in 2022 brought in about $28 billion in revenue. So that's a dollar figure, figure. But when you take into account their costs, their overall profit was $1.4 billion when adjusted, again, for operating income. So a significant part of uh, CVS's business, which is why they told us in their statement, Shane, that they're committed to providing access to consistent, safe, and high-quality healthcare to patients – and they are making targeted investments to address pharmacy teams' key concerns. What's your response to that?
1: I'm sorry, Megna, I actually lost you there for a few minutes, but I did get the end of that. So it, it's great. It's, it's most of the talking points that we hear pretty regularly that they're making these investments. But that doesn't really set well with a lot of pharmacists who are there combating this every single day. Uh, you have, CBS has taken overlap almost out of every store. So in most places, there's a pharmacist, one pharmacist behind the counter working a 12 or 14 hour shift. And everything that leaves that pharmacy is squarely on their shoulders, whether it's right or wrong. And they will not close a store if they have three call outs of technicians. So there are, there are very, there's a lot of scenarios in this country. And the reason why the walkout started uh, in Kansas City was because pharmacists were working alone essentially like running a mcdonald's by yourself
2: shane are you still with us yes okay good just wanted to be sure because um so so that so they so no matter what's been happening what just to clarify what's happening on staffing uh on a given day they they, they keep the the pharmacy open that's what you're yeah. saying okay
1: yes there's 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 no scenario where they would they would want that store to close even if no one shows up except for the pharmacist because a pharmacist has to be there in order for the pharmacy to open. So the only way a store is closed is if that pharmacist doesn't show up. Everyone else can call out, but they'll still stay open. There's We've had a ton of uh, images of pharmacists that they decided to close the store and just have drive-through only because they were working by themselves.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. And it is part of this that we have reached a place in uh, American healthcare where you know people do expect to get a if their doctor's calling in a prescription right at the to the pharmacy or putting it in online people do expect to get it in like an hour or so um, so uh, there's no imaginable scenario which I think Americans would accept that like because of low staffing their local CVS or Walgreens pharmacy has closed down for the day right for
1: sure and I think there's just a a misunderstanding of what filling a prescription entails. Like you hear that so often. I mean, people joke about it that you're just putting pills from one bottle into another <laughs> bottle, slapping a label on it and handing it to a patient. But the adjudication process is not easy. Um, when you when you're billing something, there's there's lots of things that could go wrong. Even if you get the prescription from the doctor's office, whether it's sent in electronically or a patient brings it in, Uh, you have to decipher that. You have to make sure it's correct. You have to make sure that all the necessary details are on a prescription to be able to fill it. You have to check it against the patient's profile, Uh, bill that to the insurance. You may find out that it's not covered. You can call the doctor's office, try to do a prior authorization or get a formulary switch, something that's uh, covered by their insurance. So there are many steps. And you can imagine that in between those steps, if you're doing COVID testing, Hmm. vaccinations, Uh, counseling patients on over-the-counter medications. It's required to counsel on all all new prescriptions as well. So there's only one pharmacist that can do most of those tasks. Um, That's the reason why we're being drawn in
2: so many directions, and sometimes it takes more than an hour to fill your prescription. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about how much time you had to spend, again, focusing on your time with the corporate uh, pharmacies, how much time did you have to spend on the phone on, on average with insurance companies?
1: Oh, yeah, you, you're you're spending a lot of time on the phone, not just with insurance companies, but transferring prescriptions. Um I'm, in the Palm Springs market out here. Mm-hmm. So this is there with lots of snowbirds and seasonal uh, visitors to the area. So every time you have to transfer a prescription from another pharmacy if it's not within your ch- your own chain, you have to get on the on the phone and and ask the pharmacist to, to give you a verbal transfer or fax it over. So you're constantly on the phone, not just answering questions for patients. And then when 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 a patient is expecting something, they might be calling 20 times a day just to see if it's ready as well. So there's there's a lot of time spent on the phone and there's a lot of things drawing you in every direction.
2: Yeah. Well, can you tell me what was it that finally led you to uh, leave your jobs with the with the corporate pharmacies and take up work at an independent pharmacy?
1: Sure. So I worked for Walgreens right out of school. I ended up in the Palm Springs area because there were sign on bonuses to come out here. I liked working for Walgreens. But after about five years as a pharmacy manager, I got a cold call from Target Pharmacy. Target Pharmacy was an excellent place to work for. Their business model was a little different because they didn't derive those 70% revenues from the pharmacy like you had mentioned with CVS. So it was more of an afterthought for guests in the store. Plus it was a really great working environment. You could kill an hour in Target way easier than you could kill an hour in CVS. So uh, you didn't have people staring at you and demanding that they need to get it done as quickly as possible. Halfway through my uh, time at Target, CVS came in and acquired the Target pharmacies. So now when you walk into Target, it's a CVS pharmacy inside there. Change the culture, change the model. Um, At this time, I started my social media account called The Accidental Pharmacist. Now it has about 125,000 followers on Facebook, but we have a presence on all the social media platforms. Uh, At that time, it was my creative outlet, but I did start talking about working conditions and and uh, safety concerns. And that's when um, CVS
2: said, basically, find another job or Uh shut the page down. So I decided to find another job. Wow, well, Shane Jereminski, stand by for just a moment because we are talking about the distress pharmacists across the United States are feeling about their working conditions. Back in a moment, this is On Point.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed, You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti and today
2: we're talking about the distress that pharmacy pharmacists, I should say, and pharmacy techs uh, across this nation are feeling uh, due to what they call are unsafe uh, and over-demanding working conditions at the, especially the biggest retail pharmacies in this country. I'm joined today by Shane Jaraminski. Shane's worked for uh, CVS and Walgreens for 16 years, now works for an independent pharmacy. He's an advocate who helped organize recent walkouts from the big chain pharmacies. So Shane, hang, hang on here for just a second because I want to introduce Sarah Soroda into the conversation. Sarah's a policy analyst at the American Economic Liberties Project with a focus on monopoly power in healthcare, Sarah, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So what does the uh, monopoly have to do with this issue that pharmacists are raising about their working conditions?
3: Yeah, so the monopoly issue really exists all over the place. Uh, it's important to kind of look at the way that pharmacies buy drugs and the way that they get reimbursed for drugs and how that is driving a lot of the financial troubles that we're seeing, not just at the big retail chains, but also at the small independent pharmacies across the country. So, on the buying side, uh, that market is driven by really three major wholesalers, McKesson, Amerisource Burgeon, and Cardinal that dominate the industry and are driving up costs for pharmacies that are acquiring the medications. And then on the other end is the way that they get reimbursed through entities called pharmacy benefit managers that represent the insurance industry. And they too are represented by three major companies. Express Scripts, Caremark, and uh, OptumRx, and they too hold monopoly power and are systemically under-reimbursing pharmacies, uh, potentially even below their costs. And so this is creating a situation where pharmacies are kind of stuck in the middle and they're not able to generate enough uh, revenue and profit margin to stay in business. And that's manifesting differently uh, depending on the kind of pharmacy you have. So the small independent pharmacies simply can't stay in business. Mm. Uh, we see studies showing that they are being driven out. Thousands of independent small pharmacies have been forced to close and that's driving a lot of the gi- the distress that you alluded to.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, at the large pharmacy chains, the way they're dealing with that is by cutting staff, uh, by closing down stores. You know, I, I think it's interesting that you said CVS responded to an email saying that they are uh, so invested in their pharmacies, and yet they are pledging to close hundreds of their pharmacies over the next few years. Uh, so th- this is part of the problem that we're seeing, this issue of monopoly and consolidation across the supply chain uh, of the pharmacy business that are creating all of these economic problems.
2: Mm, interesting. Just to to uh, read a little bit more from CVS's response to our questions, they said— sure we're making targeted investments to address their there being the the pharmacy employees key concerns including enabling teams to schedule additional support as needed enhancing pharmacist and technician recruitment and hiring and strengthening pharmacy tech training they say they're rolling out these changes uh, or they started rolling out them last month in November and will continue Through to next year, so uh, repeatedly in their statement, they they uh, assured or tried to assure us that they're listening to the concerns coming from uh, the the pharmacy employees. As you heard, Shane a little bit earlier, Shane just doesn't see evidence of that. Um, But do you think that some of the changes that CVS, for example, says it's making, are going to um, make a meaningful difference, Sarah, in these underlying drivers
3: that you just described? Yeah, I, I don't see them uh, addressing those underlying issues of the wholesalers, the pharmacy benefit managers, and also this issue generally of CVS and Walgreens closing down pharmacies uh, and relying more on their mail order pharmacy and more on their other subsidiaries as highly diversified mm-hmm. companies.
2: Yeah. So let me ask you one quick thing. So just to be clear, because the world of uh, pharmacy, pharmacy services, anything related to American healthcare is extremely confusing I'm a visual learner. So I want to be sure I understand what you said. So that we've been seeing sort of a a consolidation in the uh, endpoint pharmacies, right? The, the corporate pharmacies, because as you said, they're driving the smaller independent ones out of business. Then regarding the pharmacy benefit managers, you said there's only did I hear you right when you
3: said there's only three companies there? There's three companies that pretty much own a, about 80% of the market. Okay, across the United States. and uh, re- Across the United States. Repeat to me
2: again what you said about wholesalers as well.
3: Uh, similarly, that there are three major companies that control the majority of that market. Okay. And they're driving up costs, PBMs are driving down the reimbursements, and pharmacies are getting squeezed in the middle.
2: So there's been an overall like narrowing of the pipeline from the beginning where wholesalers are receiving the medications, all the way to the end point, which is you, me, Shane, everyone who needs drugs. Yes. Okay. Wow. One more question about details here. You mentioned Caremark, right? Which I understand is actually CVS Caremark.
3: Yes. And great to point that out. Uh, So part of this whole problem is that all of these companies are very uh, vertically integrated, as we call them. And so... Caremark is the largest pharmacy benefit manager and it is owned by CVS, which is the largest pharmacy chain. So that means that independent pharmacies are getting reimbursed by Caremark, which also has an interest in driving them out of business so that its CVS pharmacy stores can have more business. This is a pretty blatant conflict of interest that would not really stand in any other industry yet because healthcare is uh, rather corrupt, if I must say, uh, we allow this to happen here.
2: Oh, so because I was wondering, like, is Caremark also, they must be having differential pricing based on the end pharmacies that they're, uh, they're, sell, they're selling the, the drugs to, right? Because I was wondering, like, why would they want to drive out their own CVS uh, pharmacies out of business?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think part of this is also that they own a large mail order pharmacy. So that's part of the problem, too, is that through their pharmacy benefit manager, uh, in addition to excluding independent pharmacies from their networks, they can also basically uh, force uh, in insurance uh, members to go to their mail order pharmacies and rely less on their brick and mortar stores. Wow. Okay,
2: Shane, thank you for listening along with me. Um, because, like I said, the web here is it's kind of hard to keep track of all of it, so I wanted to get Sarah to explain stuff a couple of different times. These are things that you already know I'm well, I'm sure about Shane. What did this sort of narrowing uh, of the pipeline look like from your perspective as a pharmacist? i I see the the product
1: of this every day working in an independent pharmacy. Independent pharmacies are dying across the country because of reimbursements, predatory audits and the pharmacy benefits manager, uh, pharmacy benefits managers. Uh, A lot of drugs, especially brand name drugs, get reimbursed below cost. So that's an unsustainable business model for any small business owner. Um, Usually the only way that these independent pharmacies can survive is to find a specialty niche market. The independent I work for currently, services uh, skilled nursing facilities personal care homes does hospice patients some of those things that uh, the regular chain pharmacies do not want to be involved with but uh, it's it's very difficult to to have an independent pharmacy and that's the, that the reason why um, I would say if we don't have wide-scale PBM reform we will 10 years from now there'll be very little independent pharmacies left
2: yeah uh, pharmacy benefit managers are one of those sort of uh less understood parts of the American healthcare system that I haven't gotten my head fully around yet. So I'm thinking we need to do some explainer shows about that. But let me just play um, some feedback that we got uh, from one on point listener, Karen Hendricks of Charleston, South Carolina. And she told us she was a pharmacy intern, a pharmacy tech and a professional pharmacist for thirty seven years. And that over the past decade, working conditions at the big chain pharmacies where she was at got progressively worse. And in her opinion, it it all came down to money.
3: I worked 12-hour days, nights, weekends, holidays. I was lucky if during the day I had time to sit, eat, or even use the bathroom. The constant barrage of prescriptions, phone calls, audits, customer questions, vaccines, and insurance problems never stopped. If I had any tech help, I was lucky was so burned out, I left five years ago and never looked back. It feels as if I did a 30 years hard time in prison. I'm now an insurance adjuster with my husband, and I live a very free and happy life.
2: Shane, can I just turn that back to you quickly? How does that land with you, what Karen said? That's
1: a standard line that we hear a lot. Uh, we get thousands of direct messages to the accidental pharmacist page on a regular basis whether they're pharmacists who've done 30 years or pharmacists right out of school that don't realize that they they just feel very trapped with uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of student loans and a job that they just don't understand they can't even see what life is going to be like for the next 30 years working for in these conditions and a lot of it has to do with the 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 ancillary support staff, the the one thing that I think we haven't talked about yet is technicians Mm -hmm. are the backbone of every every pharmacy in America. And the biggest problem, why there's so many openings, is that the pay scale just is not commensurate with their skill set. And they're the ones who are, they really are the true frontline workers, pharmacy professionals. They're the ones that are dealing with angry patients. They're the ones taking in prescriptions and really putting out fire after fire. And when you're only making 17, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics has the average pharmacy technician in America making $18.12 an hour. And it's a very stressful job for that when you could
2: work down the street somewhere else for the same amount of pay. Mm. Now, I mean, my personal experiences with pharmacies are purely anecdotal to me. I'm not saying that they're representative at all of larger trends in America. But over the past few years, every time I've walked into my local pharmacy, happens to be a CVS, um, I'm seeing a lot of tired faces behind the counter more and more. And some of those folks just have to stay on the phone while the line, the line for people waiting for their prescriptions gets ever, ever longer. But the, you know, the the professionals behind the counter are just on the phone dealing with insurance companies or uh, the kinds of other things you described, Shane. And even I would say we're somewhat fortunate in my neighborhood because there are still there are many techs. And the pharmacist working on prescriptions while all this is going on. And it's still a painful process for everyone. Now, Shane, you mentioned something which I want to just pick up on about future pharmacists, right, and looking at working conditions right now, because, as you mentioned, it takes a ton of education to become qualified to be a pharmacist in the United States. Uh, And it just so happens that between 2011 and 2021, the number of students applying to pharmacy schools has declined by more than a third, by 36 percent. Well, Dr. Craig Cox is president of the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, and he says it's very concerning And this is what he identified as the biggest driver of the decline.
3: There
1: really are high stress workplace conditions and staffing shortages in corporate community pharmacies that are discouraging young people from considering a career in pharmacy in general. And the reason for that is that, I mean, this really is the most visible sector of our profession, community pharmacy. People do this often. And I think because of it being the most visible sector, that's what that's what our future students see. And when they see these high stress workplace conditions, I think
3: that's having an impact on them. And it's discouraging them from picking this career. Dr. Cox
2: told us that in 2018, there were about 15,000 pharmacy graduates in the United States. And the projection for 2026, so just a couple of years from now, is about 9,000 graduates, so a 6,000 uh, drop for future pharmacists. Sarah Sarada, I just wanted to, to get a sense from your, your response of this like kind of downstream effect that apparently we're seeing in terms of people wanting to go into the business.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very telling. Uh, pharmacy schools were booming uh, 20 years ago. Now people are not interested in going to pharmacy school. Uh, because they see the kinds of conditions that are imposed, uh, both at the retail chains and also the inability of small pharmacies to survive under the current economic uh, problems that that they're facing. Uh, and this is a huge problem. It's important to emphasize that for a lot of communities, their pharmacists are their first line of access to the healthcare system. Many communities don't have uh, doctors nearby, but they do have pharmacists, and those are really important and trusted. Uh, healthcare advisors to them, providers to them, uh, and and they're being neglected right now. And it's it's important to note this. Mm. Well, once again, we did reach out
2: to uh, many of the biggest pharmacies in the United States. Rite Aid did not respond to our requests for comment or answers to questions. Costco did not respond either. Walmart did return our calls and told us that Walmart does not break out revenues from. The 5,000 pharmacies it has. They say most of their pharmacies are in rural areas. Uh, And Walmart also told us that uh, their company's health and wellness business are about 11 percent of Walmart's total U.S. revenue last year. So that's an interesting comparison compared to the uh, 76, 77 percent of revenues that we see from CVS. Now, Walgreens did respond to us, um, sent us a statement um, talking about how much they're trying to uh, – they value pharmacists and what they are trying to do to assist uh, their concerns about working conditions. They also answered a question that we had about whether there are quotas uh, that uh, pharmacy pharmacists are expected to have. And before I get to their response, Shane, did you experience – Um, quotas or or sort of a minimum number of, uh, of prescriptions that you had to fill every day when you're working at CVS and Walgreens? Yes. So when I worked for the company, quotas were still
1: tied to your pay, to your evaluation, to the bonus that you might receive. And they always had, uh, really high vaccination quotas. I worked at a store that did 2,300 vaccines and the next year my goal was 6,000. So that gives you sort of the perspective of how, how much they've ramped up uh, what's expected and, and and these quotas. California just recently passed AB-1286, which, uh, I'm sorry, SB-362 of uh, two years ago, which took quotas being attached to uh, pay and, and, and bonuses, but it's not that they, they don't have these metrics anymore. The metrics are, are used more so to put pressure on the front of the store and dangle hours at, uh, technician hours and budget hours. So they don't tie it specifically to, to pay and, and bonuses, but those metrics are used and quotas are used to determine how many hours you're going to get in the pharmacy. So everyone's concerned about hitting these anyway, because they want to make sure that they have enough uh, tech support and hours attached to their pharmacy.
2: Mm. Well, interesting, because Walgreens, uh, in their response to our questions about this, said that in October of 2022, Walgreens announced that, quote, we are removing task-based metrics from performance reviews for all retail pharmacy staff, a significant step as We are the first and only retail pharmacy to do so, which helps create a differentiated working environment while supporting pharmacists' ability to focus on patient care, end quote. And as for CVS, when we asked them about quotas, CVS said in a statement, quote, it is inaccurate to characterize them as quotas. While we've reduced the number of metrics we measure in recent years, the information gleaned from safety and quality metrics provides us with a clearer picture of what's working and where improvements may be needed. And then they went on to say, our use of metrics mirrors what's commonly used throughout the healthcare industry. So, we're gonna talk more about what the pharmacy crisis says about the healthcare industry overall. And of course, we're gonna try and see, or at least explore, what the potential fixes are. So, we'll be back. This is on point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti, and today we're talking about the crisis that. Crisis, I should say, that pharmacists and pharmacy techs say they are experiencing in working at what may be your local pharmacy because we're talking specifically about working conditions in the biggest chain and retail pharmacies in America. I'm joined today by Shane Jereminski. He's been a practicing pharmacist for 16 years at the major chain stores but now works for an independent pharmacy. Shane's also an advocate who helped organize walkouts of pharmacists A little earlier this year, Sarah Sirota joins us as well, policy analyst at the American Economics Liberty Project, with a focus on monopoly power in healthcare. So, Sarah, what I'm wondering now is, you know, we're not just talking about like going to the pharmacy and buying ibuprofen. Obviously, we're talking about prescription medications. And a concern that I immediately have when I hear about the conditions that that Shane and the listener Karen and other people who actually reached out to us when they're talking about the kinds of working conditions they're experiencing is does it not increase the probability of a mistake happening, right? And and these are mistakes with prescription medications. So does – I mean what kind of uh, regulations, if any, do these major companies have to follow in order to um, – help prevent that, if any? Yeah,
3: yeah. I think this is a good question and I think speaks to an inherent problem of having uh, giant retail chains where basically executives view workers as just another cog in the machine as opposed to the kind of personalized care that you're going to get at uh, small, small independent stores. Uh, certainly there are, you know, the safety risks that that we've heard about are not just about workers, but trickle to patients that are going and picking up their very necessary prescriptions and why it's so important to protect those small independent ones as well. Mm. But uh, so beyond that, then,
2: can you describe if there are any Federal regulations at all over the pharmacy retail business that might uh, might apply to the situation that we're seeing now that you you described that major consolidation of the business from top to bottom.
3: Sure, there are safety standards, but as we've seen across uh, across the country of CVS and Walgreens reducing the number of staff that they have, reducing uh, the number of hours, and then also forcing these pharmacists to take on more patients uh, than they previously did, that that creates uh, higher concerns that that are just going overlooked. Fortunately, there are uh, state regulators, especially, that have been looking into this problem, especially in Ohio. I would say there's been a lot of investigations into uh, understaffing and safety problems at, at the CVS pharmacies. Mm. Well,
2: Shane, um, since you're there in California, you you probably know of this very interesting story that the LA Times uh, had back in September. Where they they said that in a survey of California licensed pharmacists uh, back in 2021, a couple of years ago, 91 percent of pharmacists working at chain pharmacies said staffing wasn't high enough to provide patients with adequate care. And then on top of that, the state's board of pharmacy found that uh, there are an estimated five million errors a year in California, and pharmac- pharmacists themselves are attributing that to the staffing situation. Uh, first of all, tell us your, your thoughts about that.
1: For sure, I was just gonna mention that, that the five million, and they estimated it because there's no centralized reporting mechanism for for pharmacies. So there's they, they are under no obligation to report a medication error to any regulatory body. That just changed in California, AB-1286, uh, which is the Stop Dangerous Pharmacies Act was passed and signed, uh, which now uh, requires pharmacists. It hasn't been implemented fully yet. Requires pharmacies to report those medication errors, and I think this is really important. I know everyone doesn't want to have regulation, but we need to be we need to have change here, because what's on the line for for retail pharmacies versus the individual pharmacist who makes that medication error and patients is there's a huge disparity there. When a medication error occurs, they they documented internally, but since there's no reporting mechanism right now, the only way the Board of Pharmacy finds out about a medication error is when a patient reports it. So should a patient report a medication error, whether it's a small one or an extremely uh, serious one, the Board of Pharmacy will come and do an investigation. After that investigation, they find out the error occurred. They might issue a fine to the to the pharmacy itself for $10,000 or $50,000 on the high end if it's a serious error. But that pharmacist, the pharmacy manager who's ultimately responsible for every prescription that goes out, could lose their license, could be on probation with the board of pharmacy for five years. So what's at risk for that pharmacist is so much more, Uh, and to the patients. That's that's why we need to have some kind of regulation here to make sure that uh, they take it as seriously
2: as we do. Mm. Well, even uh, to your point about having to document it internally, again, the, the L.A. Times reports that uh, only 62 percent of chain pharmacists said the the stores they were working at were following even those rules, meaning 40 percent of them said that those internal documentation uh, documentation rules weren't being followed, which is it's quite something. Now, Sarah, l- let me come back to you here because we're not, I mean, strictly speaking, we're not talking about a monopoly, right? Because there still are a couple of companies that are of major interest here, plus the remaining independent pharmacists in the United States. But given the percentage of the market that these you know, three or four uh, huge corporate and retail uh, pharmacy companies have... Are, do you say that uh, they're
3: skirting some, you know, antitrust violations here or antitrust laws? Uh, certainly, and and certainly in uh, the situation of this vertical integration that I described before of having these conflicts of interest where these, you know, CVS, for example, owns uh, a pharmacy as well as a pharmacy benefit manager as well as a large insurer, Aetna. Uh, and, and we've seen cases of... PBMs uh, using their power over insurance uh, formularies and, and pharmacy networks to steer patients towards their own uh, pharmacies at the expense of independent ones. And that certainly raises antitrust concerns. Mm, it raises the concerns. Has there, Have there been any uh, legal actions that you know of? Well, Right now, the Federal Trade Commission is conducting a sweeping investigation into the pharmacy benefit manager industry, uh, specifically looking at those conflicts of interest uh, that began last year. Uh, Right now, on Capitol Hill in Congress, there are many different pieces of legislation that are being debated to try and rein in the excesses of pharmacy benefit managers, so there there's certainly a lot of investigations going on. There's also been a number of lawsuits filed against pharmacy benefit managers mm, okay. and uh, pharmacies.
2: Yeah, so um, we've been. I've uh, read um, uh, many parts from the CVS statement that they sent back to us. I just want to add uh, something that Walgreens also told us in uh, their response to our requests. Walgreens said, quote, we understand the immense pressures felt across the U.S. in retail pharmacy right now. We engaged and uh, we are engaged in – a, in listening to the concerns raised by some of our team members, we are fully committed to ensuring their contributions, uh, that they are acknowledged and rewarded, including competitive pay and benefits. And they also talked about advancing their recruitment strategies and taking steps to address staffing in order to meet, meet the needs of customers, pharmacists' experience, and to advance the profession to enable them to deliver the high-value care they were trained to provide. End quote. That is from Walgreens. But Shane, um, you clearly don't think that that is enough, that the current changes that these companies are saying uh, is is adequate adic- or are adequate. What other steps would, would you take, either from the company's perspective or from the perspective of workers at these pharmacies?
1: So workers are taking a bold move. We, we just rolled out PharmacyGuild.org, which is the first national push to unionize retail pharmacy workers. Uh, after the walkouts people were looking to some of these online social media personalities in the healthcare field to say what's next are we going to have another walkout how are we going to keep that? what happens is it goes in this news cycle and and you get media attention all these good all these stories come out about how how dangerous the working conditions are how unsafe it is for patients and then these companies are large enough that they just let the cycle go through and they continue with business as usual we decided that we were going to push for national unionization. We have the backing of an established national, international union, IAM, which is the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. They have 600,000 members. IAM Healthcare, which is their healthcare component, uh, in the past has really just been for allied medical field, hospital pharmacists, uh, speech pathologists, but they've uh, given us the backing and it put resources into building the Pharmacy Guild. The day that we launched, which was about two weeks after uh, Pharmageddon, we had 30,000 uh, pharmacy technicians and pharmacists go to the page that actually crashed the website on its first day. And the same thing happened the second day. It briefly went down. We've had thousands of people fill out the, the interest form, and we're about ready to start launching campaigns across the
2: country to unionize stores.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: so it sounds like there's, there's a lot of business. Have you, uh, when I say business, sorry, uh, a lot of interest is what I meant to say. Have you received. Um, any pushback from, uh, the pharmacy companies themselves as, uh, the, the, uh, desire for union unionization seems to grow?
1: Well, they, uh, didn't seem to think that the walkouts had that much of an impact. So a lot of the, uh, stories that were run said, you know, minimal, minimal disruptions in normal operations in the pharmacy. So we thought that they would respond to this and, uh, right now everything we're just it's it's not like the classic unionization model because we have this network that reaches almost every pharmacist in America I'm working with not just the accidental Pharmacist page, but RX Comedy, it's another online social media advocate. Uh, Pizza's not working, and Bled Tanaway who started that, It has a network across the country. So we're utilizing online social media to constantly engage these uh, pharmacists and technicians, and we're we're just compiling data right now and making sure that we reach critical uh, critical levels in every area of the country before we launch campaigns and file to have elections. And we're just a few months out from having the first ones right now. Mm.
2: Well, in response to uh, our question to CVS about uh, efforts for pharmacists and pharmacy techs to unionize, CVS simply said, quote, we have productive relationships with unions who represent thousands of our colleagues across the country and respect our employees' right to either unionize or refrain from doing so, end quote. quote. Now, um, we wanted to, I just want to spend a minute or two talking about a really unique example of a completely different way of doing uh, a pharmacy business. And it comes from North Dakota because North Dakota is the only state that requires uh, uh, only licensed pharmacists or groups of pharmacists uh, owning uh, and operating a pharmacy. Or in other words – Chain pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens simply cannot exist in North Dakota because it's all about independent pharmacies there. 171 independent and locally owned pharmacies, to be exact. Now, according to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, North Dakota prescription drug prices are more affordable than two-thirds of all the other states. They have more pharmacies per capita than their neighbor in South Dakota or in Minnesota or nationally. The law, now this is because of a state law, which dates back to 1963. That law has been challenged several times, including in 1973, a different chain store, which is now owned by Walgreens. And in that year, the challenge made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. So let's listen to a little bit of oral argument from this 1970s case. This is uh, lawyer William Lucas arguing in favor of preserving North Dakota's
0: law. We want the people in the position of making policy to be professionals. Uh, uh, A pharmacist has to yield to a non-professional if that non-professional owns the place. Either says you do this or you lose your job. And we don't want a professional yielding and being in that position. And we want the policymakers to be professionals so that they will offer all these services that we think are necessary.
2: So that was from a 1970s Supreme Court case that challenged North Dakota's law preventing corporate or retail pharmacies from existing in that state. Uh, and obviously, the Supreme Court ruled, ruled in favor of North, North Dakota. Another challenge came, interestingly, in 2014. That was brought by Walmart and put on the ballot in North Dakota. And North Dakota's defeated North Dakotans defeated the ballot measure fifth by 59%. So 59 or roughly 60-40. They wanted to keep their independent pharmacies only. Now, Sarah, it's interesting to me that this law was first passed in 1963. I'm not sure I see the possibility of uh, states taking similar action now or or am I am I mistaken, Sarah?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think that the current structure is pretty systemic and it it is a uh Difficult to imagine states uh, copying this model, though it certainly has worked very well for North Dakota. As you said, they have a higher number of pharmacies per capita and and various metrics, as shown in studies from the Institute of Local Self-Reliance, have shown that it, it works very, very well there. Um, I also think that, you know, if we were to copy this model across other states and somehow get past the, the large corporate chains, we would still have these underlying economic problems that I spoke about earlier that are important to address as well.
2: The underlying economic problems of the vertical integration.
3: The vertical integration, the under reimbursement, the high cost of acquisition, these are all bigger problems throughout the supply chain that I, need to be addressed.
2: I see, because no matter how many independent pharmacies you have, they still have to go through this, the pipeline that exists now. Right. Okay. Well, to that point, um, we'll see what happens with the co- the bill currently working its way through Congress. It seems to have bipartisan uh, support uh, to tackle some of these things about the par- pharmacy benefit management companies specifically. Mm-hmm. But in the last, um, you know, 30 seconds or so that we have, Shane, I'm going to give you the last word today. What do you think the future might look like if some of these fundamental changes you've both been talking about do not happen to the pharmacy industry? If we don't have serious PBM reform, independent pharmacies will be a
1: thing of the past. And just like North Dakota, the independent pharmacies have a storied history of being the most accessible healthcare professionals in the country. Genuine healthcare is going there. You have a great relationship with your pharmacists. We're trying to preserve that. So I implore every lawmaker to champion anything that uh, deals with PBM reform and to let patients know that we're trying our best out there. And that uh, the situations and when you see those long lines in the pharmacies, it's not the people behind the counter that
2: have created this situation. Mm. Well, Shane Jaraminski, practicing pharmacist for 16 years, worked at the major chain stores we've been talking about today, now works at an independent pharmacy. Shane, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: And Sarah Sirota, policy analyst at the American Economic Liberties Project. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And once again, a reminder, we did reach out to Rite Aid and Costco to get statements from them. No response. Walmart called us back and answered questions about uh, retail. And you've heard the responses from CVS and Walgreens. This is On Point.